0: Welcome to an all-digital version of the Auto Week podcast. Uh, you're here digitally, hopefully, this is recording, with me, uh, Wesley. Uh, Natalie is somewhere in the ether. Hello. And Graham is also uh, somewhere inside my computer. I- I've been screaming at him for days.
1: Graham, how are I'm stuck you? stuck in here for weeks trying to claw my way out. It's not working. <laughs> so.
0: Unfortunate, yeah. Uh, so we are, as you can tell, in some sort of lockdown situation. Uh, not ideal for podcasting, but you know, it is what it is, but we've hopped on discord, not a sponsor, but friend of the show now to, uh, do this digitally. We're trying to do it digitally anyway. Um, but let's not, let's not make this pandemic slow us down. Natalie,
2: what are we talking for talks? This week we are talking all things coronavirus. Oh no, (laughs) sorry. (laughs) That's everything else. Um, This week, since we are soldiering on with our AutoWeek Talks weekly theme, this week AutoWeek Talks Spring, which uh, coincided with the lockdown here in Michigan, as well as probably parts where many of our listeners. The first day of spring
1: was the 19th. I didn't realize that until after the fact. Kind of got lost in the headlines there.
2: Right. Here, too. It uh, It was like, oh, yeah, we changed seasons.
0: Uh, We almost redecorated our porch goose, but uh, I made the executive order that it's still cold, so it still wears a sweater.
2: Well, in these parts, Wesley, it's cold until, what, June?
0: (laughs) Yeah, I'd I'd say so. But, uh, Graham, you wrote on AutoWeek.com a lovely story about spring maintenance. Let's talk Uh, about that.
1: Well, um, everybody else wrote educated pieces about uh, spring rates and suspension systems and working on them and i don't know anything about the technical side of any of that so i decided to talk about spring maintenance um which as i was writing it i realized is kind of only a thing in places that get snow if you're a listener in southern california you can drive all year but for us it's kind of a special thing to get your car ready for the thaw um except that we don't really have any place to go this year. Um, so. Uh, I mean,
2: okay. Not just a special thing, Graham, like a very ritualistic thing it, for me. It people. is a ritual.
1: Yeah. It And, you know, I, I don't know if I fully appreciated that until now when kind of stuck inside feeling a lot of tension, uncertainty. Um, uh, so I decided instead of taking a lot of naps, I would double down on spring spring maintenance. So, um, you know, I, I, in my case, I'm, I'm fixing up my Wagoneer that's been neglected for years. Um, but I, I don't know. I urge everybody to get out there and do something, even if, if we're not sure when they're going to be car shows again, but, um,
2: well, but yeah. So I think in talking about spring maintenance of vehicles, we have to start with the spring cleaning of vehicles, in which that's a topic I know very little about because having grown up on a dirt road, we actually didn't believe in cleaning our cars because it was kind of an exercise in futility. But I do enjoy watching uh, my husband go about his ritual cleaning of his cars. um, Once the salt departs the roads and we can safely uh, bring the cars back out and get the wax cans out and everything. I'm always kind of amazed by... You know the meticulousness of which people go about cleaning their cars.
0: Now there is a Rust Belt pro tip for the uh, for the thaw. Right, you can't go out the first nice day. You have to wait until uh, it rains a few times to clean all the the road salt off the streets. Right, that's that's how I've always uh, lived my life.
1: And, and yeah, we're about at that point right now. You know, it's rained a little bit a couple times. Um, I was I was getting ready last weekend. And then of course it Sunday night, it snowed an inch, but, but it all melted. No new salt was, was set down. So, um, you know, I've never been that into detailing. I know that's, that's an obsession unto itself for a lot of people, but, um, in in this case I actually spent the weekend gutting and reorganizing the garage. So it's like the pre car side of things. So, um, but yeah, I mean, in, in the case of my Jeep, I, I bought new wheels and new tires. I'm going to do some undercoating on the bottom uh, and try to figure out how to at least keep the rust from advancing any further so that I can enjoy the car and uh, hopefully keep it going until I can afford to get it repainted. But I mean, it, it is, it's a little tough sometimes. It's like, I got to go out there and do that. It's not perfect weather. I feel kind of crummy. You know, the whole situation's getting me down, but I mean, once you're out there for a little while and diverting your mind with, with the tasks at hand, uh, I don't know. You do feel pretty good pretty quickly. It is a nice kind of therapy.
0: Now, Graham, uh, what route are you going to go for undercoating? Are you going to go like the rubberized undercoating route? Or are you going to like break out some fluid film or some crown? I think it's another product.
1: I am going the fluid film route after a lot of debate, um, I don't know. The underbody is already kind of greasy in parts. So I figure I'll just add to it with a uh, controlled grease application. Yeah. Uh, and I, I bought a, a spray can of this stuff last year, just cause I've been curious about what to do. And I did some testing on bits of metal that were left outside in the winter. And it seems like it works pretty well, um, at least against the elements, not, not salt. That's a whole different beast, but um, I don't know. It, it's see, I'm going to spray it on uh, with a, cheap electric sprayer i got once it gets a little warmer it's it's pretty um viscous with the temperatures we've been having so but yeah we'll, yeah we'll it's not a uh, shot.
0: not suggested to start spraying that stuff at like 30 degrees i would say that's
1: so. <laughs> spraying molasses it the weird part about it and you know i didn't realize this until i bought a can to to try to uh you know experiment with it is a lot of people spray basically like wax oil combos on that's kind of like a there's a british company that makes stuff like that uh the fluid film is actually like lanolin based so it it kind of smells like wet wool it's very weird (laughs) it's a very distinctive smell uh it's it's not it's not like a petroleum smell it's a weird organic woolly smell, which, you know, there are worse things. I'm used to it. So
2: just an aside here, um, for all of our nursing moms in the listening the podcast listening audience, they're already familiar with the
1: thing I, I I am not familiar with it so
2: Well not being a nursing mom yourself,
1: <laughs> at this point. It yeah. is it
2: is a thing, yes.
0: Uh, I'm only familiar with Lanolin from its uh small cameo in Anchorman the words cameo can words have cameos who knows uh who are you gonna have mount your wheels graham or mount your tires i guess to your wheels or is that Uh, on
1: it uh they came that way from tire oh nice free installation mounting and balancing so they're ready to just throw on there once i spray all the goo underneath the the car truck whatever cool so anyway i think the key is to just you know this is a weird spring but your car still needs things done to it. So you might as well throw yourself at that task. And like I said, you'll probably feel, feel better.
2: I might add also that the other day we actually just took a drive and, and uh, drove the entire route down to Detroit up through Gross Point, whatever, and home. Um, in you know, sequestered in our little car so that the, the four of us who are stuck in the house together here were, you know, stuck in the car together, but at least it got us out and about. Um, and for a while that might be the reality, but it's still, you know, getting out and driving, you know, once the weather gets nice and, you know, the birds are chirping, it'll, you can still enjoy a drive in your car and stay safely away from other people and not touching, you know, the rest of the world.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, when you're in a car, you're social distancing anyway, right? From, like, strangers. So it's uh, driving's a perfect excuse, or now's a perfect excuse to go drive aimlessly. That and the cheap gas. Indeed. Moving on! <laughs> uh, one Jake Lingaman also wrote a little thing about springs while doing coilover swaps. And uh, now I guess we can talk about who in, who on earth would want to lower their car? And, and why why do people do it? Um
2: this Obviously, is, this, this is not a question I can necessarily answer, having never done it myself. I mean, I can certainly understand the aesthetic of of taking some of that play out of the wheel well, you know, the the look. Um, but in Jake's story, if anybody goes and 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 reads the story, I'd recommend it because it's one person's particular um, journey through the lowering car, his lowering car history, but he started with a Saturn. and That that did, you know, give me a chuckle or two that somebody would spend that much time on their Saturn. But, you know, I guess to each his own.
0: I believe Jake owned and modified multiple Saturns. If I'm not mistaken, <laughs> which your, your point's correct, Natalie, who, who on earth, but there's a, a nut for every squirrel, right?
2: Uh, well, and... more power to him for that.
1: Uh, the, there's a right way and a wrong way to do it. Uh, I remember, you know, the jokes when people were making fun of really bad, lowered like stance civics back in the day, like you don't really just want to take the springs off and then cut them in half and put them back on the car. You know, you you can get different springs for different applications. Like as with everything else, like I said, there's a right way and a wrong way. Um, And I'm not sure. uh, I Jake, I think did it the right way with his current Mustang. Um, Not sure if he did it the right way with his uh, earlier cars, but you know,
2: right. We were we were not witness to that. Um, He does go through, you know, in his story. He does uh, talk to several authorities to to make sure that all the proper points are put in there about, like you said, Graham, the right way to do it. But then Wesley also did a story on some of the tools one might need because. I mean, it's not like you said, Graham, you don't just take the springs off, cut them in half and put them back on, but also just the very fact of taking the springs off the car can be a, a serious operation. A yeah. lot of
1: people put that as one of the scariest things they've ever done on their car, you know, using a spring compressor to, to crank the springs down. Uh, Cause there's a lot of potential energy in there. I have personally never done that, but Ren, maybe you can speak to that.
0: Yeah. So I've changed springs a lot of different ways. I've changed springs with a professional strut coil spoke strut spring compressor, like one of the standalone ones. That's relatively safe. Um, uh, but yeah, you're right. Springs. I hate dealing with springs. Uh, the last time I dealt with springs was, was with my galaxy when I lowered it and, uh, there are a few, there's a, a right way and a wrong way. I chose the wrong way of dropping a chain through the control arm and knocking the ball joint loose. It's very scary when that happens, because there's a lot of stuff happening. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, a lot, of, a lot of energy in those springs. So, really, there are a lot of different suspension to styles with a lot of different springs. So, uh, tools, obviously, need when you're doing any suspension work, you need a full set of hand tools, right? Your sockets, your wrenches, blah, 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 to start disassembly. But, uh, you need a good spring compressor if you even want to play with springs safely, because the last thing you want to do is have a spring shoot across your garage or into your head or into your friend's head, because they're probably going to get hurt, right? Uh, so a good spring compressor, uh, I like a good hammer too, when you're knocking the ball joint loose, so you don't damage the boot. But if you're knocking a ball joint loose that doesn't want to, you know, be knocked loose, uh having a pickle fork also known as a ball joint separator on hand is, is good to get the nice corrosion, uh, on that seat, that taper seat of that ball joint out of that spindle or knuckle. That's always handy. Can you sometimes... describe a
2: little... What's Wesley, that? can you, can you, um, just go back a little and describe exactly what a pickle fork is for those who don't know?
0: Well, a pickle fork, uh, originally was used to get pickles out of a jar if I'm not mistaken. Um, and so there's a tool, and most people's toolbox is called a ball joint separator, which is uh, like a like a chisel with the center removed, like a U-shaped chisel, flat on one side, tapered on the other, and uh, a long handle which you whack with a hammer to drive underneath the the spindle and separate the ball joint taper. It yeah, it's uh, it looks like a pickle fork.
1: Why the hell were people using those to pick? pickles like what about tongs
0: i don't know the the i i can assume it's like a like oh. pickle slices like pickle chips i think but you're maybe... supposed
1: to like stab a pickle with it and drink bring it i mean i guess before the internet people needed to keep themselves entertained and stabbing pickles with the with the vaguely like i don't know two-pronged spear thing would uh would keep you busy for a little while at least
0: I mean, yeah, there has to be some sporting element of it, right? If you have a big yeah. jar of pickles. Just yeah, true. You'd have a, a competition of see who can spear the most pickles.
1: Uh, the end of this, we'll all be doing, we'll be back to pickle forking for fun.
0: Uh, oh,
2: pickle forking. By next week, for sure. Yeah.
0: Also, I've got large large hoops to drive with sticks. If you guys cool. want to come over and uh, play some moving wheels with
1: sticks. Yes, we can all gather on the village green and, and do some hoop sticking.
0: Ah, the good old hoop sticking. Um, Anyway, back on topic. Uh, Pry bars, another handy tool to have if you're doing any suspension work because you don't know what you're going to need to pry on uh, or possibly hit with the pry bar. Mostly, I also use them to check for play and, uh, you know, suspension components like uh, control on bushings and, like, not so much sway bar links but, like, sway bar bushings and stuff like that. You can check basically everything, every amount of play, possible check for playing any part possible with a good set of pry bars um i gotta click up the list real handy oh uh what are my favorite tools i included in this list an air hammer now not everybody needs an air hammer uh i didn't even start using an air hammer until i started working in a shop but uh it made me feel like an idiot for all the time i wasted with a hammer and chisel knocking out rivets or doing anything that involved a hammer Uh, because you have a nice air hammer and the right, the air hammer tip, and you can destroy almost anything, (laughs) even if you don't want to. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of handy ways, handy tools that you need to, uh, do suspension work. And also just so people don't yell at me for saying you're buying, you're telling me to buy things that I don't need. uh, Make sure that your suspension style complies with the spring compressor that you're looking at, because again, not all spring compressors are made equal. And not all suspension styles are made equal, so you got to make sure that you're buying the right stuff for the project you're, uh, you know, working on. But an air hammer, it's universal. It will destroy anything. It doesn't care at all. Uh, but that's, that's like, my two cents on doing any suspension work. It's always gross. It's never fun. Uh, it's a good way to get dirty and not in, like, a fun way. You know, like, when you're doing engine work, it's like, oh, I'm going to get greasy and... Uh, be productive. It's generally like, Oh, I'm going to get greasy and fix broken things.
1: I think that's, that's the biggest, uh, I don't know if intimidation factor is the right way to phrase it, but you know, when you're working on an engine or other mechanical parts of the car, there is a little bit more, uh, you you can take a little bit more delicate approach. Usually if you're using too much force, it means you're about to break something or something is not going together correctly, but suspension work always involves a lot of bashing, uh, either with a hammer or an air chisel. or You know, it just seems like you're going to break something. Uh, at least in my experience, but maybe that's because I've always oh, worked well, on old cars. You know, it feels like you're always one wrong hammer blow away from seriously screwing something up. But it always seems to go back together. So,
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's the problem with suspension parts, right? It always the most of them are like interference fit, or uh, if not, rust definitely takes a stronghold and creates a a nice natural weld. As it were. And there's a lot of improvisation that has to happen when doing suspension work like a like a ball joint press that you'd use to press in and out interference fit ball joints like on a square body C10 pickup truck or a lot of other ball joints. Uh, I used one to set the to replace my idler arm bushing in my 54 Ford, which has a required depth set, which is not specified in a manual. It's very dumb. Uh, so you can use tools for not not their real jobs. It's it's fantastic out there underneath the car. It's fantastic. I can't suggest it enough. But always be safe because it's never fun. Anyway, moving on. One last topic we'll hit at the top of the show: the frickin' pandemic. What are you guys doing to stay sane? I know we touched on this last week, but uh, what about this week?
2: Oy. Oh, oh. Uh... What are we doing? Um, not showering. I feel like this <laughs> has a lot of parallels to when I was home on maternity leave. Um, just, the, uh, just the lack of getting up and out of the house seems to uh, squash a lot of regular routines that most of us probably had. Um, a lot of sitting, a lot more sitting than uh, <laughs> when I, we were going to the office every day, which is unfortunate. Um, but also I think, you know, we've done a lot of sort of innovation on the fly like this. I mean, we practiced playing around with the podcast opportunities or uh, the other day and figured out how we might kind of, you know, knock it together. And here we are. Um All of our meetings have been online at, you know, just as with the rest of the world, the country, whatever. Um, and you know, a lot of times conversation, meaning and conversation can get lost when you're just slacking each other or just texting. But still, I think it's also upped our communication game. So, you know, from a work standpoint, there are some positives, right?
0: Oh, I totally agree. I think it's made us all more conscious about uh, communicating and communicating well with each other. Uh, but I will say the last time I showered was Friday. So it's very gross around these, these
1: parts. Uh... I, the only one who like gets up at a regular time and does my regular morning routine. Is that.
2: Oh, Graham, I'm up at the regular time. <laughs> it's just all this stuff that I you get after that has fallen and... by the wayside.
1: Wow. Okay. All right. Well, besides that, I'm um, you know, again, taking the time to actually, like I said earlier, clean the garage. My goal is to get two cars in the garage, hypothetically, uh, which would be very impressive if it wasn't a two-car garage.
2: <laughs> by well, design. I'm, I'm going to say that most people have two-car garages in which no cars gr- reside, so you'd be way ahead of the curve.
0: And, Graham, you oh. have a true two-car garage, right? Not like a two-and-a-quarter or two-and-a-half?
1: Yeah, uh, it's, it's not – it's not any bigger than a two car garage, but still there were times when I had been able to get two cars in there. And so my goal is to get two cars, a motorcycle, a spare Packard engine and transmission, uh, and three, uh, Marine outboards in there. So there are some complicated okay.
2: factors. But... <laughs> the bigger question is which two cars?
1: Uh, at the moment, my Wagoneer and my 51 Packard, cause everything else is in storage nearby. If I if I can fit a Packard in there, if I can fit two Packards in there, I can fit pretty much two anything else's in there, except for like Cadillacs or Lincoln's.
0: But uh Yeah. I think that's about it. That's about it for this segment. Um, tune in next to an interview with Hurley Haywood that happened a long time ago at the Daytona <laughs> Rolex twenty four. Back uh, when happier, be
1: happier time. Yeah,
0: okay. happier time.
3: It is once again my great honor to be speaking with uh, racing legend uh, Hurley Haywood. Hurley, how are you?
4: I'm really fantastic.
3: Oh man, mm-hmm. that is the best response I've had yet. Good. I mean, I've heard sort of fantastic before, but really fantastic. Is yeah, really it?
4: fantastic.
3: So, Couldn't be better. <laughs> that's just remarkable so we're here for the 58th running of the daytona 24 hours of daytona this is this racetrack this is something you've won five times you're with the legendary brand and porsche and what is there is there something new about the 58th running that is exciting you anything specific about it well i think you know when you look at it um
4: quality of the cars is unbelievable in every single class. There's three classes. Every cl- class has got absolutely flawless cars, well put together, uh, good drivers on them. There are no, no weak points on any of the teams. And I think that that is one of the big differences from this race to races in the past where, you know, there have been a lot of, you know, um, sort of windows where you could take advantage of and the teams would canvas the whole field and find out where the weak points were but when you look at this field there are very very few weak, weak points in all the driver lineups even guys on on the GTD side which have you know sort of um, money guys driving with them yeah um,
3: the bronze and silver yeah, level those
4: are those are Guys that are really good, so um, you know there's there's reasons for that, but uh, it it makes the field a lot tighter and a lot more difficult.
3: Last year, one of your roles here at Daytona was to be Grand Marshal, I believe. Is that
4: it? that wasn't last year? That was five years ago.
3: Okay, <laughs> by last rides. year, I I do my years in fives. That's uh, okay. That would, okay. Do you have any official role? Uh, like that, that you're doing this year.
4: I'm just a, a Porsche ambassador.
3: A oh, Porsche ambassador. Okay, so um, why don't you uh, explain to me where you are from a Porsche perspective, looking at your GTLM teams, your GTD teams. What What's making you the most comfortable? What's making you the most nervous?
4: Well, you know, you, from the nervous standpoint. You know, when I come inside a racetrack like Daytona, you know, I can feel the energy, I can feel the anxiety, what's gonna happen. And that's I like that feeling. When you look at you know, at the at the teams, you try to on the on the Porsche side they've done everything humanly possible to make the cars as perfect as possible. Both of the cars were one two on the grid. They did an excellent job with, you know, making that car pretty much bulletproof. And now it's up to the drivers to bring it home in one piece. And that puts a lot of pressure on the drivers, but their drivers uh, are, are top notch. You know, Nick Tandy is, is really, really good. Uh, but every single person on the Porsche team is, is good. And they, some might have a little more experience than other, others, but, um, you know, when I started, I didn't have any experience. Hmm. And, right. uh, you know, you just, uh, you learn from experience and you learn f- from running a car that's not going to break. And that's one of the real pluses with Porsche. You know, you, you know you're driving a safe car. You know you're driving a car that's not going to have a lot of mechanical failures.
3: Does it frustrate you? I find myself getting less patient with balance of performance and all these tweaks that keep coming up constantly to make the cars equal. And that makes it harder for a truly better engineered car to show that it's a truly better better engineered car. From your perspective, you've been in this sport, you've been a tie to this sport for a long time. Does that frustrate you, or do you just accept it and go forward?
4: Well, you don't have an option. You have to accept it because that's just the way it is. And, you know, BOP, I hate BOP. I don't like it. But it's necessity that you have to have to keep all the manufacturers happy. You know, if you have Ferrari going out or BMW or Corvette and they're way ahead of all the rest of the guys. You got to bring them back a little bit or the rest of the guys are going to leave. Yeah. So, it's kind of, you know, you you have to have it in there. You have to have it where the rules allow for productions, but I would I would prefer if I was a sanctioning body and a manufacturer, I would prefer once the rules are set at the beginning of the year, they go with that formula for 6 months at the halfway point of the season. And then at the halfway point of the season, if they need to make an adjustment, they do it. But they don't do it every single race. Sometimes, you know, rate, you know, an hour before they go out to practice. <laughs> yeah. you know? So yeah. I don't. I don't like that. But I think all in all, they do a pretty good job with the balancing um, prospect. But um, I don't think they need to do that every single race. I like. I like. Having a car, driving for a car, uh, driving a car, and driving for a team that had enough expertise to give me a big margin of performance. Yeah. So I could go out and blow everybody away, and I like that, and I think the fans like that. Yeah. But um, you know, that's not the case anymore. You don't want to show your all your hand all the time.
3: And that's really fascinating. You say that because. It is true that manufacturer involvement these last few years is as strong as it's ever been, and that is a very important uh, financial financial uh, input into the sport. And I suppose an imperfect IMSA is better than a non-existent IMSA.
4: Yep, yeah, you gotta you gotta keep the players happy.
3: Yeah. Yeah, and from your point of view, is it is it still good racing? I mean, in a way, it does add a little bit of the driver plays it a more important role in terms of smart overtaking moves, good strategy in terms of taking care of the car and those bits. Well, these 24-hour
4: races over the last five years have become 24 uh, Twenty-four one-hour sprint races. Mm-hmm. The guys driving as hard as they can go, n- not taking the risks because you don't want to collide into somebody. And I, t- t- you know, talked to the, to the Porsche guys. And I said, just don't make a, any mistakes. Don't do anything that's going to jeopardize the car because time spent in the pits fixing something you can't make that up on the racetrack anymore. Yeah, yeah. you know, we used to be able to make up five laps. If you're down five laps for anything, we could make that up if we tried hard over the duration of the the remainder of the race, but you can't do that anymore. Yeah, that's incredible. So um, (coughs) you have to, you know, zero mistakes, and that's been a a mantra with Porsche for as long as I've driven for them, is make no mistakes.
3: So do you find it harder to follow IMSA and Daytona and all those things now that you're a movie star and a book published about you and all this kind of stuff—is is, it—is it—is it hard to have to keep the paparazzi away because um, everyone's just knocking at your door wanting to talk to you about your movie?
4: Nope. <laughs> <laughs> if they didn't do the
3: knocking and they didn't do the thing, I would feel hurt. You know? Has anything has anything changed since the movie Hurley came out? Uh
4: I'm more recognized in places that I would normally not be recognized. So walking, you know, down the street, somebody will come up and say, "Oh man, I saw your your film and I really liked it." So, I uh, yes, but you know, not to the standpoint of you know Matt Damon or somebody like that, where you know they're known, they they can't hide. Right. <laughs> I can I can still hide a little bit.
3: Yeah, yeah. Well and that I mean that might be kind of the perfect the perfect setup where you can get that dose of celebrity if you want it, but then you can also get away from it if you're not interested in it. Yeah. Yeah. So now for the for this race, what are what are you keeping your closest eye on? Are you just looking at Nick Tandy and Co. and the G T L M or are you no, paying I'm attention looking, to say
4: I'm looking at everything. You know? yeah. So I'm I'm you know, looking at the, the um, DPIs, I think you know the announcement that ACO made was a, a step in the right direction. Whether it goes to fulfillment, who knows? But and that's least, the announcement
3: that there'll be a tie in it. Twenty twenty two season, I believe mm-hmm. it is, where DPI will be a part of ACO.
4: Yep, yeah. and D- DPIs will have the same performance value uh, as a hypercar. But when I thought about that that's going to mean some significant BOP um, penalties on the DPI cars because I can't conceivably think that a a hypercar would be as fast as a DPI car. Yeah. But you can't get too excited. You can't worry about it because you don't really know what the rules are. They said they're going to have the rules out by, by um, Sebring. And I'm sure the engineers will look at that and they say, yeah, this is really good. We can compete in that. Or, no, that's ridiculous. Uh, DPI, or the uh, hypercar would be super expensive. Yeah. And, you know, how many private teams are going to make that commitment? Who knows?
3: Well, they're super expensive, and the ACO has already proven that they're willing to bend the rules. You know, the original hypercar concept was still hybrid, and Aston Martin said, but we don't want to do that. And ACO said, okay. So, I mean, it just, it, I'm with you in the sense that I'm still, I'm hopeful, but I'm not necessarily confident just yet. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, who do you like in the DPI section? Are you paying, you still think the Cadillacs have inherent strength? I mean, or is is Mazda going to break through? Or do you think Acura is going to break through?
4: All of the above. <laughs> I think, you know, I think, you know, Roger Penske is not going to sit on his laurels and, and not make the accurate, um, you know, right up to snuff on speed. Mazda's done a great job, but you got to remember, Mazda has been, had a horrible, you know, five or six years of just flopping around like a dead fish out of water. And then all of a sudden... All of that work and all of that energy all came to fruition, and now they have a car that you know is really fast. So, uh, and Cadillac certainly has has proven that they've got a good chassis and a good motor. So, uh, I think as as development goes on, that those cars are becoming, you know, more and more reliable and and cost effective to race. Where compared to the hypercars, yeah. And compared to really I mean the budgets the budget to run a DPI car and the budget to run a GT car, a low-all GT car, are probably
3: very close to each other. Wow. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, and when it when whenever I think about the Cadillacs, I always think about balance of performance and how low stress that six point two liter V eight is under to make whatever the BOP power ends up being 550 600 whatever that 6.2 liter is barely barely uh breaking a sweat whereas the Mazda's two liter engine that's going to be hurting that's going to be you know running pretty hard and uh wow yeah oh okay
4: (laughs) (laughs) well you're right uh, you know you, you, less stress on the engine, but, you know, as far as Porsche goes, you know, Porsche really has had load displacement engines that have high high output, and they run them 100%, and they never break.
3: Yeah, I mean, the 919 was a 2-liter, yeah. wasn't it?
4: So, it's it's just, I think, technology on engine building uh, has, has uh, advanced so much that, you know, you can run a low displacement engine, um, or a high displacement engine, really, really high, you know, really yeah. strong.
3: Yeah, and even then, you don't worry too much about durability. You think it's there? It's there. Yeah, so. and it's proven that it's there. So it's
4: not something that you wish, wish, if I wish this thing had more reliability. You know that it's got reliability.
3: So no forecast for rain. For the next 24 hours. Does that surprise you a little bit, or are you like, I'll believe it when I see it?
4: No, I don't. I mean, the weather forecast, I've looked at the weather, and and there's the only possible problem is because we've had these big temperature uh, influxes that you could get fog here i could mm. i could see it getting foggy sure you know, because of the moisture in the air and the cold air and uh cold air cold dry air with damp you know saturated water and you got that lake out there you know you could get fog here so that's never good but um and and do you know, dew, is makes things slippery i was talking to one of the porsche drivers and they said you know at night with with the dew setting in, it really gets to be slippery when you're going out on you know new mm-hmm. tires or cold tires. oh sure yeah so many very famous racing drivers have gone out of pit lane too fast um and hit the guardrail and destroyed their car <laughs> yeah so now you're 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 um Rev limiter, pet speed limiter is not turned off until you get well out of the post stop. yeah, or the pit line,
3: yeah. So, uh, how how much do you think the twenty four hours Daytona is just its own animal, and how much of you think it is a indicator of who's going to be strong for the rest of the season? You know, because twelve hours Sebring is next, very different race in many ways. But do you look and say, hey, if you're strong at the 24, you're going to be strong everywhere? Uh,
4: yeah, I mean, I think... I, I, yeah, I think, you know, performance is performance. And these cars, you're going to change the setup on the cars. Like, you know, you're not going to run the same setup that you have here at Daytona at Sebring, because Sebring is such a different animal. Um, but as you, you know, slice all the races together... I think whoever shows that they're strong here will show themselves so strong all year.
3: Yeah, yeah. Well, your uh, opinions are always really appreciated, and I love the nuance bring uh, bringing up things like the fog. Uh, Mr. Haywood, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us a little bit.
4: My pleasure, as always.
0: And closing the digital show, you're still here with me, Wesley. Man, that Hurley-Haywood interview was so good. Uh, And you're here from across the country, Mark Vaughn. Mark, how is Los Angeles? It's empty, man. It's totally empty. It's the most
5: bizarre thing. Here in LA, everybody loves to complain about traffic. And in normal times, uh, if you want to get anywhere in Los Angeles, uh, and I speak as a nearly lifelong resident, you have a little window between 11 a.m. and maybe 1 p.m., and you can get out there and squirt through traffic. Maybe at that point, anytime before or after, it's just almost total gridlock. Uh, there's, uh, you know, it sort of moves eventually, but uh, from my old office, when we had an office on Wilshire Boulevard, I I have to drive directly across the worst part of L.A., and so Yikes. I would. I would depart home late and stay at the office until late because I had noticed that there was another window at night between 8 p.m. and 10 p.m. that you could actually get somewhere. And then at 10 o'clock, they start jutting down the freeways to work on them, you know, tear them up <laughs> or whatever they do. Yeah. and so you know this this is my reality most of the time. And then this terrible coronavirus thing comes along. And the benefit as uh, I wrote I actually wrote a story for autoweek.com please go to autoweek.com, listeners and click on all my stories multiple times. But I wrote this story about, and you, and you look at the traffic map uh, out here at sigalert.com. I think across the country, you can just go to Google and Google traffic and it'll show you a a real time map of your particular city. And so if, for my story, I I went to the top 10 worst traffic cities in America, according to Enrix, which studies that, that, that stuff and I uh, copied and pasted the 10 traffic maps during rush hour, and they were all green. There was, wow. okay, the Cross Bronx Expressway in New York, which I guess is uh, kind of a, its own private hell, and the the uh, the tunnel, the Lincoln Tunnel, uh, they were red. But the rest of the country was just green, and traffic was flowing. I, I remember, I'll throw in an anecdote here since, uh, you know, that's allowed, isn't it, anecdotal? Oh,
0: yeah, absolutely. One, I,
5: one time I was, I happened to be flying back from Europe. So I left Lisbon, Portugal in the morning during rush hour, you know, looked out the window saw gridlock everywhere. Did a connection in London, looked out the window, saw gridlock everywhere, and then flew from London to Los Angeles, looked out the window and saw gridlock everywhere. So it is a global problem. <laughs> I mean, we have global pandemics now, but, uh, you know, traffic. Is never a fun thing and so LA right now it's completely empty I was um, I was out there I had to return a uh, motorcycle that I had uh, borrowed from uh, BMW press fleet here and uh, it was just it was amazing the the streets the, the highways everything it's like the Omega man or something and you can take <laughs> your choice of the Charlton Heston Omega man or the later Will Smith uh, whatever they
0: called that I don't think they called it Omega. Uh I think it's uh, called I am <laughs> legend he has to kill a dog, Jeremy like,
5: There you go. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's well, there's a spark of hope. In- <laughs> anyway. Uh, so, so yeah, that's what it was like. I mean, you often think, I often think <laughs> living in LA, well, what's what's gonna happen in the future? You know, maybe there'll be a prolonged drought and we'll all leave, like the Anasazi had to leave the Four Corners area uh, and you know, desert their civilization there. In the future, will archaeologists be poking around Los Angeles going, why did these people leave this civilization? Their high rises, their Malibu beach homes, all gone suddenly in the spring of 2020. Uh, I don't know. Maybe that'll happen, and uh, it's if, if they do, at the very least, we'll be able to finally get somewhere here in Los Angeles. <laughs> I
0: mean, now got to crack a few can't eggs. Can't take
5: advantage right?
0: huh? You got to crack a few eggs, as it were. That's right. You got
5: yeah. You have to destroy civilization. Yeah, and that's the answer to traffic woes. Is well, begin by destroying civilization, and then you can actually solve the traffic problem. Yeah. So, it's uh, yeah, but there you go.
0: Uh, but anyway, Mark, what were you writing? Let's talk about that really fast. You're, I know it was a BMW. You kind of buried that lead, but uh, what kind of BMW? What was it like?
5: really cool uh the particular one that i had was the bmw r1250 rs everybody knows the gs the adventure bike from bmw that's yeah. the icon of bmw that's the icon of adventure bikes really it's uh started the whole thing and um it's it's really cool very comfortable if you have to traverse the kalahari desert or mongolia or you know africa or something you to what to want uh, but this is a version. It's got the same engine, a flat twin, which is the iconic BMW engine. So it's two cylinders sticking out sideways, um, firing away. This one is uh, twelve hundred and fifty four cc's. It got a bump last year from 1170 cc's. And uh, now horsepower is up to 136 horsepower wow. for a mo- motorcycle that weighs 500-something uh, pounds. I don't remember exactly what it was. And by golly, that thing is a blast. So the RS version of that, uh, it doesn't have the, all the, uh, the adventure bike uh, paraphernalia on the sides of it. And uh, the handlebars are a little bit far forward, so you're leaning a little bit, kind of like a sporty bike position when you ride but still very comfortable and uh, very small cowling and windscreen, which actually is only effective if you put your head down on the helmet. Uh, but uh, it's it's it looks cool and it's it's very very fast. So I rode this bike and just had a blast on it. Um, you know, I uh, the story that's up at autoweek.com. Go there and click on this story thousands of times, please. It uh, it sort of goes into a little bit more depth. But I was able to ride this uh, on some really great roads uh, because you're you're isolated. You know, on a motorcycle, you've yeah. got your full face helmet with a visor down, and you're all alone. So it's it's not as bad as attending, you know, uh, an Irish pub as happened here in L.A. Uh, <laughs> and it's it's our local big scandal. Some guy owned an Irish pub and opened it up on St. Patrick's Day, and now he's being uh, coronavirus shamed for having done that. But uh, uh, so I, I got, did get to ride it on some great roads and it, uh, it's got, it, you know, a sport bike is far more immediate, uh, far more severe, uh, far less comfortable than this, but it has sporty attributes to it. The class that it fits into is known as sport touring. So it's not a straight up full on touring motorcycle. It's also not a, uh, full on uh, sport bike, but it has o- attributes of both of those things. And I found it just, uh, a joy to ride on this thing. So much power, so smooth, so comfortable. I, you know, I didn't want to give it back, uh, but I had to. So I drove on those empty freeways, rode on those empty freeways. Uh, that, was a, that was a blast. Looking forward to it. I'm a little bit motorcycle happy lately. I don't, I don't know why. <laughs> it's just, it, they put a smile on your face. They're just a blast, you know? Yeah, they're far more dangerous, but you can mitigate that danger. I've got some great gear. I've got a full set of Dionysi gear, AGV helmet. Um, I just, and it's warm as toast. It got, uh, if I run for right up into the mountains where there's snow and it's cold outside, you know, it's, it's not like Alaska cold, but it was, I think, 40, 40 degrees uh, up at the peak, up at uh, uh, one of the highest points that I rode in the local mountains here in Los Angeles. There was snow on the ground. And this Dionysi gear just kept me so warm. I just, I just love that stuff. So that and the powerful bike, it was a, it was a great experience. And I think a lot of people could benefit from, you know, they probably wore a lot of listeners probably rode bikes back in the in college or in their youth. And they uh, had to give them up because they had to lead responsible lives and raise families and earn money and bring home the bacon and wear a hat. But they, uh, you know, now maybe you can go back into it and it is still just as fun. In fact, it is a lot more fun than it was whenever you were riding 30 or 40 years ago because the motorcycles nowadays are so much better. The technology is so much better. You just, you push a button and the bike starts. It's not, you don't have to stand up on the, the Kickstarter. Don't you have a bike, uh, Wesley Ren?
0: Yeah, it's a conveniently a kick only shovel head. So a old, oh, old Harley, you go. uh, so yeah. that's, that's a point, too. You don't have to go out and buy a new motorcycle. You can go out and buy a, an old motorcycle, too. Uh, that's There's nothing more fun than motorcycling, You're, except... You are
5: mechanically inclined.
0: Yeah. The only thing that might be more fun than motorcycling is uh, driving around in a Bentley, <laughs> which you've also done. He is
5: the master of the transition. <laughs>
0: yeah.
2: I
5: had a, uh, a Bentley Flying Spur, which is, uh, uh, boy, that's a that's a... That's a lot of fun. Uh, it's, it's huge. Uh, I think I, 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 looked up the, uh, the length of the thing. I, at first I thought just riding it, I thought it was a Bentley. I, I thought it was 19 feet long. It's mm-hmm. <laughs> just my guess. Uh, but um, in reality, it's uh, like 17 and a half feet.
0: Long. Oh, so that's not, I mean, that's not that big considering. Oh, no, no. Well, but it sure looks big. Yeah. 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 I, I mean, it's just, it's
5: gigantic. Uh,
0: I think we'd call that presence, presence. in the uh, in the, presence. In the world. Road presence it has a nice presence. Yeah. So
5: it 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 weighs uh, five thousand three hundred and seventy three pounds. Which yes, that's that's heavy, <laughs> but it's not as heavy as six thousand pounds,
0: <laughs> or even seven thousand pounds. Eight. It's not as heavy as eight thousand yeah. pounds.
5: That's right. And uh, it is powered by a uh, six-liter twin-turbo W12, which makes 626 horsepower. So that is more than enough to, uh, as they say, get it out of its own way. And it it gets to 60 miles per hour in 3.7 seconds.
0: I mean, what more do you
5: want? At speed, 207 miles per hour.
0: And um, naturally, you couldn't get it up to that speed because of laws, correct? Uh, well, I did not try two oh seven.
5: That's okay, for sure. Okay. In Europe on some of these launches in uh, on the Autobahn, you know, I've been close to two hundred in these things. And they they are they don't get squirrely at all at those speeds. They're aerodynamically and mechanically sound, even at uh, top speeds. You don't I mean, yeah, it's a little bit terrifying because you're you you're actually moving that fast and laws of physics suggest that if you make a big mistake, you will obliterate the car and uh, it's, it's very well, uh, very well engineered, very well sorted out and comfortable. And the, the inside of the, the thing is just, uh, I mean, the the big thing is that diamond stitched leather pattern that seems to be the, the mark of, uh, luxury excellence. Uh, but everything else in it, uh, works quite nicely too. I was quite happy in this Bentley flying spur. And you know, like it had you had a Rolls-Royce of similar size and speed and stature, there's more of, in my mind, a stigma about the Rolls-Royce and less of a stigma about the Bentley. You don't feel quite so much like driving over the poor people in a Bentley as maybe you would in a Rolls-Royce. In a Rolls, I don't know. Yeah. You've driven these cars.
0: Yeah, I, I totally agree. I mean, you, you still get the, little, the slight urge to scream at the poor people in a Bentley, but you're not going to run them over.
5: Indeed, yes, and, and,
0: but uh, the, the the drawback, of course, is the base price is two hundred
5: fourteen thousand six hundred dollars. So you know, start saving up now. Uh, it's less than a it's less than a Rolls Royce. Oh, so hmm. there you go. <laughs> and uh, it, one thing that was really interesting about this car, it, it has this. Anti-
0: we, lo- we lost it there um, one second could you could you say that again oh one thing that's
5: really interesting about this car despite the weight that it uh, has it um, it has an active anti roll which basically you go around a corner and rather than leaning over and scraping the outside door handle along this pavement mm-hmm. as you go this thing just pretty much keeps the the thing flat Around the corners, it's it's really neat. Uh, I, I guess it's a forty-eight volt uh, technology that allows it to do that because it's an it's an electric motor inside the roll mm. bar, basically that uh, it, it instantly uh, counteracts roll in the in the vehicle. You know, roll bars front and rear, obviously, yeah. and uh, keeps it flat around the corners. It's it's a feeling that um, if you've driven AMG products, AMG is that way in a far more extreme manner. It's like, uh, you will not roll! <laughs> mm,
3: mm, mm. And,
5: and with the Bentley, it's uh, it's it maybe a little bit more refined than in the AMG product. Uh, but it's still quite impressive, these active anti-roll bars. Uh, very nice, all-around lovely, splendid uh, automobile.
0: Well, sir. Mark, uh, Money money Be Darned this is a, a PG-13 podcast. Uh, you see your BMW 1250 RS and you see this Bentley Flying Spur which one are you going to jump to or walk to I don't know do you jump or do you walk I mostly walk which one do you walk to
5: I have my servants calling Ah
0: okay all right well that's that's reasonable that's 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 a good approach
5: Uh you, what are you saying like if I could only have one Yes or <laughs> Well, I would probably get the Flying Spur in case it ever rained.
0: Ah, okay. Pragmatic. Right. See, that's, that's, that's an approach that uh, is often forgotten when comparing luxury cars to motorcycles.
5: But can't I have both of them? should not I be able to
0: have it all? Well, Mark, I mean, I can't. But looking at you, I think you can. I, you can have it all, Mark. You can right. have it all. Yeah. The irony, of
5: course, is now that both those vehicles...
0: Oh, yeah. You, you can't have either of them but
5: <laughs> you can't yeah. keep them because eventually they'll arrest you and take the cars back. Yeah, anyway. Something about
0: so. grand theft are to that effect. Theft yeah. auto GTA. GTA. We should have Jake, uh, Jake Lingaman to Jake is actually eavesdropping you're, you're the, right now. So you and Jake are the gamer. Ah, yes, we do. Uh, you can find us on Twitch. TV slash auto week to watch us play video games. Uh, did you already discuss the uh,
5: the big uh, matchup from Oh, no, Friday? we didn't.
0: We didn't. We're we're, sa- we're saving all the work-from-home cups, which you can watch on twitch.tv slash auto-week every Friday, it seems, um, to uh, have a big discussion after we can all, all get right. back in the office. This uh, work-from-home thing is... that be fun. Ugh. It's trying times for us. But, Mark, real fast... Yeah, well, you'll get an office someday in Detroit, <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Mark, real fast, what are you doing to stay sane out in Los Angeles?
5: I am working very hard on behalf of Hearst Magazines, and uh, I want to thank Hearst Magazines for continuing to employ me, and I will work very hard to uh, warrant whatever it is that I
0: Way to toe the party line, Mark, and uh, I'd like to thank you, the listener, for listening to us uh have this conversation thank you for staying with the odd week podcast thank you for hopefully dealing with this digital presence that was that is only uh, gonna last a short term this is not permanent this is a temporary solution to a temporary problem uh hopefully we'll be back in the studio shortly but until then tune in next week